This is a Mr. Thrive Media production. Wish I had a million dollars. Hot dog! I'm Joel Volk and welcome to Small BizCast, where twice a month I explore the lives of small business owners to dig a bit deeper and expose strengths, weaknesses, ideas, and challenges with blemishes and all. Today's episode is a skip down memory lane as I interview two dear friends about the mentors that helped shape our lives and our careers. Lawrence Appel is a retired entrepreneur and executive with companies like Weight Watchers, Jamba Juice, and several others. Mark Levin is a CPA, business consultant, and an entrepreneur who ran a small family restaurant chain, a manufacturing company, and several other businesses. To me, they're dear friends and kindred spirits who have been there as I navigated my life and my career. As you listen to Small BizCast, you will find comfort in knowing that you are not alone. Hopefully, you'll learn something while finding inspiration and ideas from the people I introduce you to, like Larry and Mark. Hopefully, you'll laugh with us too. Hot dog, it's a wonderful life. Let me introduce the premise of this episode of Small BizCast. About two and a half, three weeks ago, unfortunately, my good friend Mark lost his father-in-law, Sam. And I was on the Zoom funeral, which is what we do now. We have funerals by Zoom. Person after person after person spoke about Sam, who owned a restaurant that was prominent in Los Angeles called Nibblers. Everything they said about Sam, which was so wonderful, was tied to Nibblers. It was like he was one in the same with his business that he built. It was almost as though one did not exist without the other. And so I've, I've met Sam, I think, once at a family party. And I remember Sam telling me his story, how he got started. And he was just this wonderful guy who had this great business story. And I know that I was thinking about the people in my life that have been like father figures to me. And then I, later on, upon reflection, Mark and I were talking about Sam and how I just had this realization that Sam was, was really, his, identi- his identity with the restaurant was almost inseparable. And then Mark and I started talking about his experience and Mark, how he was kind of a mentor to, to Mark when Mark first started. Mark suggested that we do an episode about the mentors in our life. And I love the idea. I love that idea because there are several father figures. I wouldn't necessarily use the word mentors, but people that helped me along the way that gave me life lessons that helped me be who I am as a human being and also who I am as a business person. And I thought, what a great idea. And so Mark and I decided to do that. And then, then I mentioned it to Larry. And Larry said, that's a great idea. I've got a couple of people I'd like to talk about too. So uh, since we all know each other and we have a deep fondness for each other, I thought it'd be really nice if the three of us just spoke about the mentors and the father figures that helped us in our life and our career. So uh, we're with Larry Appel, who's a retired executive and business owner, and Mark Levin, who is a practicing CPA, but has had several businesses and had a very varied career. And uh, so I thought uh, we just sit and talk about the people that are important to us that were father figures. So thanks for joining me, Larry. And thanks for joining me, Mark. Glad to be here. So Mark, will you tell us a little bit about Sam? Well, Sam is from a rare segment of Los Angeles community. He's a native Los Angelino. So he grew up in an area of Los Angeles called Boyle Heights, which was the center of Jewish life back in during the Depression, World War II. And his life did not start out well in that his father passed away when he was just about four years old. So when we speak of mentors and father figures, uh, Sam did not have a father figure. So he frequently, looking, looking back on his life, he frequently would acknowledge the blessings and the fortunate turns in the people that he met throughout his life always seemed to have an impact in a direction he was going. 
And he would look back in his later years and feel very lucky that he met certain people in his life. And I wouldn't, they were not necessarily mentors as a father figure type of thing in terms of teaching you the, the values in life and the, the secrets of success, but people that just happened to appear in his life when they were needed, you know, and that kind of was the theme of his life. He always seemed to feel that his success came from the people that he met along the way. Well, I always feel as though the, the, the things that I, that I think are clever, I can tell you they don't come from me. They're almost all plagiarized from somebody who said it and it seemed to resonate with me. And, and so you worked with Sam for all those years and you have some of the, the markisms, the things that you've said over the years, some of those, are they right out of Sam's voice or are they? I met Sam when I was 29 years old when his daughter, his eldest child, Carol and I got married and I was a practicing CPA at the time. So I had like eight years of, of experience in the real world. So when I met Sam, I was, I wouldn't say fully formed, but I had a fairly idea of who I was and who I wanted to be. And so when I met Sam, it, was, it wasn't as if I learned anything right off the bat. It was just seeing him in action. And I don't have any Samisms, so to speak, other than when I started talking with him about the possibility of leaving public accounting and joining him and Carol in the restaurant business. Uh, he told me that there was two types of people in the restaurant business, and I think Larry will attest to this, is that those who were born into it and those that are crazy. <laughs> and crazy, uh, he, crazy. <laughs> <laughs> he, he welcomed me into the, into the crazy category. That's how we kind of started our, and it was truly, really, it was a true partnership. Um, I was leaving public accounting into a, an industry that I had no experience in other than my McDonald's experience when I was in college, but this was a much more complex operation. And he trusted that I had enough common sense and knowledge of financial statements that he could teach me what I needed to know about the restaurant business. So that's how we started out, that I was welcomed into the crazy club. What about you, Larry? Do you have anybody come to mind? Well, it, 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 your, your question actually resonates like directly onto the, the two people for me who have been instrumental in, in my life and career. So when you asked about, you know, do you have, uh, was it Sam-isms? You know, I have, I have phrases that I just used last week with my son, you know, who's just relocated. I mean, Andrew, who, who I worked for at Weight Watchers, you know, he, he was famous for saying, you make the best decision possible based on the best information available. And that was his dictum. So you would go to his office, you would have a, a, a sit down, and he would throw you out and make you go back and research more and then come back and do more research. And then you would present it to him and he'd say, now go do more. You know, he would just keep drilling and drilling and drilling. So he, he taught me the value of not intuition-based decision-making, but fact-based decision-making. And Gary, who was my boss at the La Petite Academy uh, back in the uh, zero zeros, uh, he, he had, the, we would sit at, at, a, at board meetings and people would debate and argue. And Gary would say, he would turn to the table and he would say, you know, facts can help us make this decision. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I have these things in my head and they, they go around. So when you ask that question, just it was like, bang, you know, they're, 
That was a great. Now, when Andrew would send you back and send you back, eventually, would you come back with the only available solution there was because you did enough research that you narrowed it down and narrowed it down, narrowed it down until you had the obvious solution? Yeah, I mean, you, you would learn to that the ethos there of being comfortable making a decision, being based upon having done research that you didn't right. just pull this out of your butt. You actually challenged yourself to think through and where it was data-based, you'd get data, et cetera, et cetera, where consumer driven, you know. It, so yeah, I, it worked. It really took hold from, from me in particular because what I didn't have any quantitative knowledge and experience before I went to work at Weight Watchers. So for me, I was a pure right brain guy, you know, in, in a business environment that being challenged to become left right. brain. Right. And, and, I, and I like to piggyback on that. I remember a story about Henry Kissinger, about how one of his aides brought him a, an analysis that he was asked to do. And he brought it to Henry Kissinger and handed it to Henry Kissinger. And Henry Kissinger says, is this, is this the best you can do? Or no, I, the next day, Henry Kissinger says, is this the best you can do? You know, he was really crushed and took it back and worked on it some more and brought it again. And again, Henry Kissinger took it. And the next day, the aide called him and said, Have, what's your thoughts on it? He goes, well, is this the best you can do? Took it back again and worked on it again. And finally, the third time he brought to Henry Kissinger and he was going to ask, is this, is this the best you can do? And he, he said, yes. He goes, well, I'll, I'll finally, I'll read it. Oh. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. That's, so, that's, yeah, like that's the joke. That's the joke of the, the reporter who goes to the rabbi and says, I want to do an art. I want to do a story about the sermon you just told. The sermon was about 90 minutes. Can you boil it down to three or four? And the rabbi says, sure. He goes, well, why didn't you do that in the first place? (laughs) 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 So I think of Eddie. Eddie Eddie was my mentor. I had worked in small business as a teenager. And for me, Eddie's weren't nearly as wise as that. His were, were more clever. And I remember going to him once and a customer wanted me to lower the price on something. And he said, go back and tell him you only get a certain amount of peanuts in a bag for a nickel. And so (laughs) that stayed with me all these years. For all these years, I would use that all the time when people would come to me that things have to have value and you have to get paid for the value. So the lesson was on the, you know, on the back end from, from Eddie on stuff like that. He had always had those, those types of sayings that were very helpful to me to understand the importance of, but look how look how they stay with us. I mean, look, it's a little off from mentoring. I'm I'm just reminded of another example of a. So I was 21 years old in my very first job, and some lady said, as part of something going on, she said, "That's why they put erasers on pencils." Right. And you know, and it's a, just one of those things that stays with me, and it's it's always comes out. Right. <laughs> right. So I guess that begs a the question then: What is a mentor? Ah, I don't know, is the sh- my short answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll give you time to think, Larry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can give you some general thoughts, but, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah. I, looked, I looked it up on Google this afternoon, and I said to, my, and I said to myself, those were not the people. <laughs> those were not the relationships that I had with these people that I'm thinking about in my life who have been special and who I think, quote, mentored me. 
yeah. but it certainly wasn't as formal as what I read about this afternoon. If, if, if we don't know what a mentor is, maybe we know what a protege is, right? And I don't think I was ever anybody's ah. protege, but I had, I had father figures that entered my life at different parts of my life, including my own father that would teach me life lessons that seemed to resonate with me. I remember when I was in my early 20s, I joined a networking group in the Valley and the executive director was a guy who had, he was a fighter pilot, a double ace in World War II. He had two careers at two successful careers as an executive. His name was Dick Ecker. And he was a great father figure to me at different times. I knew him for about 20 years before he passed away. He had a, a wonderful way of imparting wisdom while lifting you up. But he wasn't a mentor. He just was a father figure that was very helpful to me at a certain point. So at some level, he mentored me, but he didn't, you know what I'm saying? He wasn't a mentor like the way I think of what a mentor might be. Yeah, I was thinking, I was giving a lot of thought to, to that. And you know, I kind of have a vision in my mind of what a mentor be just how it would be described in an encyclopedia. But to me, a mentor is, and how I distinguish a mentor from a teacher, the teacher instructs you and teaches you skills. Okay. Right. A mentor teaches you how to succeed in life. And, and it's somebody that truly cares about how you turn out as a human being. And it may, it may be in the context of a career. It could be just in the context of life, you know, like your friend, Joel, who, you know, was a friend who someone who was someone you could confide in and then offered some imparted some wisdom that helped you get through a particular challenge or a hard patch, a rough patch in your life. So a mentor is, is somebody who has wisdom, not just knowledge uh, and, and imparts and, that. And a, vest, and a vested interest in, this, in your success, right? It's That's a, right. A success a as a human being. It's a selfless you know. gesture towards your somebody else's. Right. And, and, I, and a success, a vested interest in you being a, becoming a successful human being, you know, a good person. Uh, and if it happens to also uh, lead to business success, you know, that's, that may be the context in which the person is mentoring you because that's where the relationship may have started. Uh, that's kind of how I have, after, you know, you posed the question, how I've kind of answered it for myself. That's, that's good. That's good. In my case, I was left in, especially with Andrew, was I think back over all the years, because Andrew was a lot of what you just described. He was wise. He was a great businessman. He was certainly somebody that I looked up to. And he was somebody who guided me without being direct, but he gave me opportunity. And I've spent my entire life saying, why? Because I think back now to when I first met him, when I first went to work at the company and how he moved me and took me from here to there and put me in this, he moved me in all these different roles. He put me on special assignments. And I say to myself now, why? What was it about me that he was willing to take a risk? I mean, right. let, let's be frank here. This is, you know, we were running a large business and he was putting me in all these important positions that I had no experience with. Why? You know, and and my gratefulness to him is of course eternal. I mean, you know, that's my kids know of him. They they met him many times. You know, when when they were growing up, and and we miss him terribly because he lives in London and he's older now. And we hear from him once a year at Christmas and wish for more. But it's like when I, I'm left with, what was it that he saw in me that he was so willing to risk and give me those chances? And and. I don't have a great answer for that, but I am certainly grateful for it. That's for sure. Have you mentored other people? And if so, what have you seen in them that made you want to mentor them? You know, I, I thought about that too. And 
I don't think I've had anybody directly like I had, but I like to think and I'm, that the people that I was responsible for throughout my career benefited from the way I was managed by Andrew mm-hmm. and how he interacted with me, that I would do the same to them. So I, I think people got fragments, you know, they didn't get me, you know, right. overseeing them. I don't think I had a, well, I had a couple of maybe people who might say that they were protégés of mine, but uh, they're getting out of jail next week. So. <laughs> <laughs> they got, they got a jail has tattoo. This is Larry on it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, but, you know, hopefully some of those people would, 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 say, would say now that they, they got pieces of, of that relationship that I had with Andrew. How about you, Mark? Have you mentored people? Yes. And I would say that one of the things I learned during the mentoring process, and this kind of maybe speaks a little bit to Larry's question about what did Andrew see in him. I saw in people, I thought, a potential for uh, advancing and would be eager to invest my time and interest in them to see them advance and improve. Uh, But sometimes the mentee isn't interested in climbing to the level that the mentor may have seen in them. You know, they just don't want the responsibility. They don't want the, the pressure and that they don't see in themselves what you see in them. And I had to accept that in, in, in one case. In another case, the person exceeded, exceeded my expectations. Yeah. And uh, to this day, uh, I'm close to him. And he attributes a lot of his, I don't want to say success in business or financial success, but the success that he has as a, as a father and as a U.S. citizen now with, the, with my participation. And, you know, and it's just, I took an interest and I cared about them. And I don't know if I imparted any particular wisdom that, that they carry with them to this day, but they do know that I was there for them and, and that I was committed to their success. I remember conversations that you and I have had, Mark, and I think I'm, I'm going to guess that Larry agrees with this, that when you, when you hire people, you want to hire people for the character that comes out, not necessarily your skill set. If they have a, if they have a good customer service instinct, if they're nice people, if they know how to say thank you and greet you and look you in the eye and, and then, then that's who you hire. And then you can teach them the skills they need to do their job. Fair enough. Yeah. There's another story I tell. I was just going to make the point that I, my, okay. guess is, my guess is that's what Andrew saw in a young Larry. And that's what people see in those people they want to mentor is somebody that they think that has the basic foundation that they identify as can be successful and then they help them build on that. Yeah, I, I, but in, in my case, I wish I had more drill down to really understand that because I really came to that company with such little skill. I mean, now what, I, what did I have? I had, I had right brain, I had conceptual thinking. And I think that was one of the things that, they, that he liked about me is that I had a holistic view of the total corporate experience both internally and extending out to the customer. And I was, and I was stupid enough to speak my mind freely. So, you know, I, I, I had no, no filters on. So I would sit at the table and I would go, but that's just bullshit. 
you know, and the group would go, oh my God, you can't say that. I go, but it is, you know, we can't do that. And I, I think that was appreciated. And I guess he saw some of that, but I, can I, I'd love to tell you my story about Yeah, yeah, please. So when I was, my, one of my first jobs there was, uh, and again, I'm coming at this, I was so like, like, like a blank slate. One of my first jobs was the head of training for 35,000 people around the world. I didn't know how to do that job. So I went to Delta Airlines. I called up Delta and the head of human resources was nice enough to allow me to come down. I fly down to Atlanta. I go to this meeting and my first question, I think I'm 30 years old and I'm wearing this suit that would be, I'd laugh hysterically at the suit that I was wearing today. And I said to this guy, so I want to know how you train people to be so wonderful as your service providers on Delta Airlines. And he looked at me and he said, we don't train them. He says, we, we, we recruit them and we hire them. And that means it's the exact same thing that right. you have just said, but that was earth shattering for me. You know, it was right. like, wow. Well, I remember when I first heard that concept, I felt like it was a big epiphany as well. That, that bing, 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 of course. Of course, you know, my, my mother and father taught me to say thank you. So I say thank you. I, I've gone to people, I had an employee that was one of my most efficient dispatchers. She, could, she knew where all the people were at all the time. And if a service call came in, she knew who to dispatch. She would tell them directions from where they were, how to get there. She was amazing. But when she'd get off the phone, I would go crazy because she didn't say thank you to the people. And I would walk up to her and I'd say, can you please say thank you? And she'd look at me like, don't tell me to tell people thank you. If I want to thank them, I'll thank them. And I would go, oh my God. Okay. And we put signs up. We're not the DMV. We'll put mirrors up. We did everything to try to make her because she was so good from a skill set. But I would, get, I would get a call once in a while going, who's that rude person who just helped me? And so I had to let her go. And it was painful and it was had I hired the opposite way I would have had a better success better success in that in that department earlier it took me that right. light bulb to do that well in in the restaurant business you know it's a hospitality business right you're there to serve people and create a a uh, positive comfortable experience so when we would interview servers one of the questions I would ask and one of the things I would be looking for was their affect. And one of the questions I would ask is, what's the, mo what's the single most effective way of communicating to a customer that you're happy that, you're happy that they're here? You know, what, what was the most effective way of doing that? And I get all sorts of answers. But the one answer that I was looking for, and I was also looking for it just in their affect, was a smile. Right. You know, if they, if they had a smile on their face during the interview and they evoked that type of energy, you know, I knew that they would create the right experience that we were looking for in the restaurant. So you can't teach somebody to smile. I mean, right. to be have a, be a, have a smiling demeanor, right? Yeah. Either they have or they not. You know, you can't teach people to, to be on time and value the importance of being punctual. You know, these are things like when you said, Joel, you know, hire for character and train for skills. That's been one of my mantras all through my career. And it, it's been a good rule to follow. And I come back to that with my kids who are a, a grown up and in their careers and thinking about it with my, my grandkids now. But, you know, we talk about the future of work and we talk about their careers and what's going to happen and how the world has changed and is changing and changing faster. And I always come back to the point that when it's all said and done, 
the skill that will be the most important skill going forward are interpersonal skills. Right. Yes. Which is exactly what you guys are, are saying. Right. So if, I mean, if you're, if you're a dick, people don't want you, Yeah. you know, and yeah. it doesn't matter how good you are. I mean, you have to learn to work either if, if, if it's customer facing or if it's internal, you know, in a behind the scenes role, you have to learn, you have to be able to get along. You're listening to Small BizCast, featuring mentors and mentorisms with my good friends and guests, Mark Levin and Lawrence Appel. We're going to take a short break and be right back. Over the many years I've worked at Mercury Document Imaging, we've been solving business problems using technology, and now we have this new reality. Employees are working from home, and companies are trying to stay relevant and efficient and have accountability for their employees while doing so. The big problem is that the cyber criminals are working from home too, and they have been doing this longer and know what they're doing and know what vulnerabilities you've created by kind of throwing this together quickly. So now that it looks like we're going to be here for a while, it's time to think about this. I want you to reach out to my company. We'll either help you or refer you to a partner that can help you, depending on what the vulnerability is. But the first thing to do is start with an assessment, make sure that you're protected, and then find the weak link. So please call us, 818-782-1221. My extension is 25913. But call anybody at the office. We're all happy to help you, and we want to make sure that we don't have any more problems than we already have. Thanks. We are back, and you're listening to Small BizCast, where I'm interviewing Mark Levin and Larry Appel as we talk about the mentors in our lives and how they help shape our careers. So I was yeah. talking the other day to a, a businessman. He's got a, he's got a company out of state, so he commutes between California and, and Washington State, where his, where his business is. And he had a employee who he, he identified as the future of his company, and he was really trying to mentor him, and he really believed that this was the guy he was going to pass his company on when he's ready to retire. And he gave him a lot of added responsibility, helped him grow and did a lot. And this, this person just gave him uh, no notice and quit, you know, just, he was describing to me the, the rejection, the, you know, the, the blunt force trauma that he felt from this happening. And I talked to him the day after it happened, he says, I'm processing it better now, but it was Armageddon yesterday. And I was thinking about that in relation to the conversation we're having that that's part of it also. There's an emotional commitment that we give or that we've been given by whoever has mentored us that part of the equation. I'm guessing Andrew was emotionally vested in your success, Larry. And, mm -hmm. and I know Sam was in Mark's because, you know, for obvious reasons that, that Mark was a son-in-law, mm -hmm. but I think he wouldn't have done that. He wouldn't have made that adjustment in his life if he didn't love you. Why would you want to commit to somebody like that unless you really loved him and had deep affection and respect for them? Yeah, I mean, he, he, his daughter may have married Fredo. Right. You know, <laughs> in which case he wouldn't have put the energy in. So you, you're, you're right. I mean, <laughs> Never speak ill of the family. <laughs> <laughs> Larry and I both have had some significant people in our lives that kind of catapulted us to greater heights. But when you think of mentors, I mean, it could be in small proportions as well, you know, peppered throughout your life. And when I was in public accounting out of college, I worked with small privately held businesses that were started by, most of them were started by the greatest generation, men who maybe, most of them did not have college educations or high school graduates that came back from World War II and started their businesses with sweat equity and they just worked, 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 worked. And I was fortunate enough to become close to some of them and ask them, you know, where they attribute their success to. It came down to three 
you know, three things that was a common, they didn't all say it in these words, but it was the common theme. And, and the, uh, the first one was the obvious one that they, they worked, they worked hard. I mean, they slept at their, they slept at the shop and uh, they worked seven days a week, you know, to get the business off the ground until it became, you know, until it grew and became successful where they could hire, you know, employees and management level. The other one that I noticed was that they all had great communication skills and uh, it gets to the people, the, you know, the people character skill. They, they had the skill of persuasion and just good communication skill. They're able to pass on their vision and, and what needed to be done. And then the, the last one, which is always hard for an entrepreneur is the ability to delegate and to, to let go of the reins and, and, and hand over, like in Larry's case, where he was handed over the responsibility for training, you know, Andrew had to make that choice and be comfortable and empowering you with those responsibilities and, and was willing to take the risk that you would screw up. And, uh, you know, it gets back to your comment about that's why pencils have erasers. You know, Andrew was wise enough to know that, uh, you know, in order for the business to grow beyond him, he had to delegate. So those are three things that I gleaned from conversations with people that I viewed as being successful. So now that we have this environment where many, many businesses are working remotely and people only see their their staff or their colleagues on on this two-dimensional screen like we are now, can a mentor relationship be fostered? Boy, I think it's going to be so much harder. It, I mean, and this is probably maybe ask a 30 year old person or 35, maybe you'll get a different answer. But from where I sit, it just seems, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I don't know how to do that. I just, I just think it'll be harder. Uh, it, it will. I mean, I, I hear what Mark was saying about the qualities of the mentor working right. communication skill delegating. Well, part of the reason I, I built that relationship with Andrew was working hard. And, and, and I know that there are people who would say that this was all wrong, but this is back in the day. But, you know, I would get to the office at seven o'clock in the morning. Why? Because we had a kitchen there and, and we were allowed to have breakfast there, you know, but there's always something in it. Well, I would get there. I lived in New Jersey and I was schlepping to Long Island. I would, and I'd get there at seven o'clock in the morning so I could interface with Andrew. And so we would have breakfast together and I wouldn't be leaving there until six or seven o'clock at night. And so, I mean, as how, how are you going to do that right. in a two dimensional world is, right. is what comes to mind. And just eating a meal with somebody. Yeah. You know, there's, there's just something very core of having a meal with somebody and interacting at that level that you just can't substitute with a, mm-hmm. a Zoom meeting. It's the meal and it's the, the time that isn't structured. So to allow him to interface with me in a way that was beyond the, the, the boundaries of their job or of the company, which would make him increase trust and liking mm-hmm. and confidence. And I think that that was a big part of it. And how, how much of the discussion would you have would be about uh, quality of life and happiness and you want your career to be something that fulfills you on a happy basis? And the reason I ask that is that I, was spent the, I spent a few hours today with a young kid about 23 years old. He just graduated college about a year ago and he doesn't know what he wants to do. And I said, I was asking him a few different questions and he said, I really, like, what's important to you? Because I really want to be happy. And I was thinking, boy, that's a, that's a rich kid's answer. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's all I can think of. Because if you're just trying to survive, happiness is the last thing on your mind. You you know that you got to put food on the table and you got to pay the rent. And boy, happiness, wouldn't happiness be nice if that was part of the importance of that? But mm. it's not. And so I brought that up a little bit to him that, you know, maybe at this t- stage of your life where you're trying to establish yourself financially, that happiness can be third or fourth on the list of what's important with the job, not first on your list. And and I could tell the way he heard those words, it was not sinking in. Like that was, yeah. you know. He didn't want to hear that. Yeah, no, 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 no. I'm not spending 40 hours of my life a week not being happy. And I'm thinking, well, okay, at you know, my age, I, I think I agree with you. But at your age, I think it's the wrong priority. But maybe I'm wrong. I'll speak to that. There's there's a guy by the name of Mike Rowe. He used to host a show called Dirty Jobs. Right, right, right. right. He's a real advocate for blue collar jobs and blue collar uh, career paths right. that uh, aren't necessarily tied to a college education. And uh, he took issue with the phrase "follow your passion." Mm-hmm. He said, "You know that may not be the best advice because sometimes people aren't good at what they're passionate about." Okay. He said, I think it'd be better and safer to advise a young person to take their passion with them to wherever job or wherever they want to work. All right. I mean, because these dirty people doing dirty jobs, they're cleaning sewers, they're doing some really disgusting things, but they found a way to be successful from a financial standpoint. And they took a lot of, they got a lot of satisfaction from the the service that they are providing to, to their community or to their customers. And it wasn't what they were doing that they were passionate about, but they were passionate about the impact they made on the people that they served. I, I think happy is a uh, something that is inside you and you're not going to find, you know, externally. See, and I, and I hear, I heard that conversation with that young man you had today, and it takes me back again to uh, one of those corporate buzzwords and things that we went through towards the end of my career, which was around engagement. So it's not about being happy. It's about being engaged. Now, Mark, you just spoke to that about if you can build the bridge in your mind between what you do every day for eight or 10 hours, whatever it is, build the bridge from there to some something bigger than you, then you're fully engaged and engagement yields happiness. It's not the. It's not whistle while you work. Woohoo! Look at this. I'm hitting a nail 50 times an hour. You know, I'm happy. It's not that. It's oh, I'm doing this, which creates that, which makes me happy that that I've done that, and 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 I'm actually famous for <laughs> saying something similar to that in front of 150 people at a at a conference that we had. When I got up and I said to everybody who worked in the corporate office at Weight Watchers, and I said, I don't understand how you people can't connect what you do to the customer. We can't do what we do serving the customer without you. I mean, to me, it really was intellectually mind-blowing for me. But I was speaking about engagement because they wanted to be happy. They wanted perks and they wanted benefits. And I wanted goodies from them because that's what they were there for to support us out in the field. So a few weeks ago on Small BizCast, I I interviewed someone named Tony Corretto and he was talking about a company that he knows of allows the employees to write their own company culture book 
and lets the employees describe what's what the company should stand for so that when they're doing their job their values are reflected in their work and their work is often just it's 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 a it's a customer service based you know you you, you take the inbound calls and you got you you're measured by how many calls an hour and how many resolutions you right. get and so on and so this company i believe it was zappos I, th- I think i'm almost positive it was zappos was was famous for not letting that metric be that that which drives success but lets the employee th- doing good work and having good customer service you know s- customer service holistically not just the product but in terms of how they treat the people um, let that determine it because what's important to the employee became the motivation for them doing good work I thought it was very interesting. I mean, you still have to sell the widget, right? You still have to make the money to, in order to, to pay it. But I think it empowers the person to bring their passion to what might be hitting the nail 50 times an hour, as you put it. And, that, and to take it right back to mentoring, I mean, all of us with our people who we have been lucky enough to have in our life who guided us and, and supported us, isn't it because they saw in us this willingness to become engaged to the purpose and mission of the organization. I mean, you're not going to invest your time. You're not going to, you're just not going to do that unless that person is ready to go all in. Yeah. So what may, what what I was thinking when you said that is I may not be able to tell when they're all in, but I can certainly tell when they're not. Exactly. Yeah. You can tell the abstract when you have someone who's just doesn't want to be there, boy, that's that's so obvious. And and they can poison the organization. So you really want to get rid of them as quick as you can. And the way I used to describe it was that I want an employee, when I show them a bar, be playing, I want them to be competing in the high jump, not limbo. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's a Markism. That's a Markism. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) The thing that, Joel, you, you raised a great point in terms of being able to illustrate the value stream from the, from the cut and, and you, Larry, from, from the worker to the end customer. And uh, in a restaurant business, it's very easy. I mean, it's right there, it's immediate. They have a meal, they enjoy the meal. Most of them don't, don't express their satisfaction, but they'll definitely express their displeasure. Um, but when you do, you know, but you know, if somebody comes in, they have an expectation, you meet their expectation, they leave, they pay the bill. That's a successful interaction. And a, and a waitress gets tipped and, and it's kind of immediate. But when you're creating, when you're building a widget, and you're selling a product and you're not at the point where the product is actually being used, you know, there's a disconnect. And what we used to used to do to try to bridge that disconnect with our employees in the manufacturing company that I ran, we make we made carbide tip circular saw blades. And if that doesn't make your eyes glaze over, you know, I remember you ima- that company. Yeah. <laughs> you can you can imagine what the employees how the employees feel about the product that they sell. You know, it's not very exciting and people are at a dinner party aren't going to be interested in hearing about what you did at work that day. So, you know, we had to, we had to communicate to them and, and, ex, and, and show them that the blade, how the blade was being used in the manufacturing of picture frames and how, when we got letters from our customers that the, the blades helped them uh, uh, manufacture picture frames in a much more efficient and less waste and, and more quality manner, you know, we had to show our, we showed, made a point of showing our employees, this is what mattered. And this is why we are so strict about our, our, our specs and that this is why you need to be mindful in the shop when you build a saw blade because the person using it has this 
expectation and they really appreciate when a saw blade works. Like they, have their, they have their livelihood. The customer has their livelihood on the line. For right. The and they're counting on us right, right. to develop, to deliver a product that's going to help them you know, succeed in their business. So did you find that the, the average worker in the factory got the, got the concept? Were you able to see them light up for that? Yes. It had to be consistent. Right. We couldn't just do it once a year. We had to really put our mind to sharing with them when we got a, a letter or a comment from a customer and we would share it in the break room at lunch and, you know, share the, share the successes with them so that they understood. And, and, and when, when we disappointed yeah. also, right. You need to we, know what happened when, when the blade didn't perform as well as expected. I, I'll tell you what I used to do is, uh, I used to take photographs of the, the, the customers with their brand new copiers. And I used to send the customers the photo with a little thank you note. And then at some point I started putting them on the, all the photos on a wall and made a, a smile wall. And, and all the employees that worked inside, some people were, you know, clerical and some people were, were, you know, they just, they unboxed the copier and they put it together. They didn't, they never saw the customer, but, but I wanted them to see that you're making people happy. And it was really just a very, it was, it was really a small thing. They weren't seeing that this helped them make money and this helped them put livelihood. And it was not as far down the, the line of concept as what you were describing, Mark, but it, I wanted them to see that we really are ultimately about making people happy that there's that, that a client may be the name of the company, but the customer is the individual that we interact with. And so we're, we have to make the customer happy. And so we were really, I was really detailed about using the word customer over client whenever I could and showing that this, this is ultimately our job. And this is, and that's to me strikes me as an example of what I was thinking about earlier, but speaking of mentoring. I'm glad one of us is bringing us back on top. <laughs> <laughs> well, well I, I, it goes back to your question to me earlier, have, did I ever mentor? And I think what you guys are talking about is what I was trying to say about fragmenting. It's like, like think of a meteor, you know, that gets blown up and there's little pieces of it that, you know, and I think that's part of what you both have done and what I, I have done. It's like you are shaping people. And, and I, 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 I didn't know we could end up talking about mission and purpose and values and all the rest of that, but it's about you. I mean, it's your personality. It's your giving of yourself to these people, which made them better at their jobs and at their life, hopefully, because you were, you're teaching character, right. you know, you know, and I think that's part of it. I mean, my little vignette to the example that you guys are talking about, when I owned my Jamba Juices in LA and we had a horrible experience one day, I got a call and the kids were out of control in the, in the shop and blah, blah, blah. And I run down to Brentwood and, and I hear what, what happened and, Actually, it was a call from the client. The client was in Century City and he had blah, blah, blah. I'll make a long story short. I took 24 smoothies to Century City in these gigantic boxes to make good. Right. Because we had screwed up badly and, you know, everything was awful. And I, so I'm schlepping through Century City, you know, with 24, with boxes of smoothies to bring right. to this company as a, and, and I went back and explained what happened to, you know, to the, when I explained it to the folks in the, in this, in the shop. So hopefully they learned something from that. I wasn't mentoring them, but hopefully I taught them something that day. Right. By example. By, By example. example. Right. Right. That, that's a good point. You know, uh, mentoring isn't always 
just overact. It could just be by osmosis. That's right. Yeah, you hope they watched and you hope that they learned a lesson. The, the, uh, I see that in my son sometimes. He'll say things that I know that he heard me say or heard, watched me do from a business perspective. And I think, okay, so, it, you know, people do learn these lessons occasionally. I'm sure, I'm sure you guys have that example too with your kids. But the, the, the one that comes to mind is I was listening to him uh, talk to a, you're going to like this, Mark, because of some shared training that we had, but he, he was listening to it. I was listening to him speak to a prospective person. And he said, I want, I want to make sure that you feel comfortable telling me no. <laughs> I go, all right, Charlie. All right. <laughs> he got through. Okay. Got through. <laughs> That's good. Well, I wanted to share one thing that uh, I think uh, I passed on to Joel. Speaking about father figures and mentor, I'm going to speak about my own father. Uh, I had to earn everything I got. I never, my parents were not overly generous. I don't know if it's part of the gener- that your, your generation, but they were, weren't generous with things. They're generous, you know, with experiences and, you know, giving me a, a secure, um, su- you know, supportive environment to grow up in. But, you know, if I wanted something, I had to earn it. You know, so that comes in the mowing lawns and washing cars and delivering newspapers. But one phrase, you talk about Samisms, you know, you know, that you take with you and Larry shared some, but one that my dad taught me is that when anybody gives you a price, you just say the next four words, you know, can you do better? And that has saved me thousands of dollars over the years, you know, and uh, it has nothing to do with people management, but it has everything to do with business negotiation and, you know, getting the most value for the money without overstating with the peanut. What is it? You only get so many peanuts in the bag. You only get a certain amount of peanuts in the bag for a nickel. That's right. For a nickel. Right. Right. So I would ask the question, can you do better than a nickel? Yeah. I'm just asking. Yeah. I'm just asking the question. Well, you've, uh, you know, you've shared that with me a long time ago and I I've adopted that from time to time and I've tried to push that on to my son from time to time, actually. And I think it has saved us quite a bit of money over the years. It's surprising how often that results in uh, a different answer than the original price. Surprising. One of the things that Dick Ecker used to say used to, was, was when somebody was being nitpicky, he would say, you're picking fly shit out of pepper, he would say. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> That's a new one. Yeah, that's a new one, yeah. I'll be using that one. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, that's that generation, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, in other words, I feel like a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest. You know, <laughs> in, in, in terms of you know, uh, it's it's futile. It's, it's similar to the fly shit and pepper. You know, it's like it's futile. It's futile. Fly shit and pepper. We were talking. I, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about my father-in-law. Actually, I was my father-in-law was a um, you know I met him when I was about thirty when I started dating Lori, and he was a um, he was a very funny guy who rarely smiled or laughed. He was. He was just very dry sense of humor and he was really, you know, wise, self-made for sure. It came from immigrant parents and, and he went, worked hard, went to school and uh, was a CPA. And I remember early days in my career when I would call him for advice and it was really my asking advice, but it was also a little desperation because I was, there were times that I was, you know, broke and I was trying to figure out how I'm going to pay payroll, rent, taxes. And it was, and he used to, as a CPA who helped a lot of larger companies, he would look at my books and he would tell me I wasn't charging right. I wasn't, I must not be doing some things right. 
you know, look, look to your numbers. He really valued the numbers going back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, you can solve problems with facts. He was, that was his, that was his way of doing things. And I remember calling him up in super desperate ways. And I was telling him my story and I knew that he was wise enough to know that I would really needed a handout. And he was, I, in hindsight, I know that he knew that I was trying to work up the courage to ask. And I never asked. I, never, I would sit there, I would hang up the phone with him. I put my hand, head in my hands in almost pain. And he kind of forced me to solve the problem. He mm-hmm. kind of forced me to, if I, I, I have a feeling had I asked, he would have helped me, by the way. But he made me go, go to, back and get more data. Reach to the, to the depths of my soul to solve this problem without him. Exactly. And so I, I always, I wish he was around too. He's also unfortunately gone for some time, but I wish he was around where I could have this hindsight conversation and thank him for not, not doing what I needed him, what I thought I needed him to do, but instead doing what I did need him to do, which was to let me sort it out on my own. Empowering. Yeah, it is. I wonder if I'm in the same position later on in my life, if I will act the same way to somebody who's on the other side of the phone. It's interesting. I wonder if I'll have that wisdom. So this has been really wonderful. I really enjoy talking to both of you always. And I know, Larry, I, you know, I always am grateful for you because you introduced me to Mark, sort of. One of the nice mitzvahs you've done for us in our life. Well, that's uh, one of the joys that uh, I've been able to do, which is, which is great. And I, it's just great seeing the two of you, talking to the two of you. I only wish I was closer to be able to do it more frequently. So I'm in. We feel the same way. Yeah. Thank you. Take care, you guys. Good to see you. All right. Bye-bye. It's most often the individuals that we meet along the way that help determine the amount of satisfaction that our accomplishments provide us. Thank you, Mark Levin. Thank you, Larry Appel. Shall we continue to live vibrantly long into the future? Okay, full disclosure, I plagiarized those words from Mark. I just couldn't do better. He sent that note to me after we recorded, and I just thought it was so well written, I thought I'd steal it. So, uh, mea culpa. Thank you for listening to Small BizCast. You can follow us by giving us a like on our Facebook or our Instagram pages. If you have business questions or would like to give us any feedback as well, please go to smallbizcast.com. Next on Small BizCast, I'm interviewing Kaylee Gall, a young entrepreneur who had a great idea and executed it really well. She's mastered social media using Instagram and TikTok, and now her Etsy store is just killing it. Here's a sneak peek. I was pondering it over it, over and over, and I went to my dad and I was like, I'm going to do it. Is this the time to keep you know, expanding? And he kind of looked at me and I kind of looked at him and, and I did it. You know, I was like, I'm going to put more and more cute stuff into the stoner community. They need it. They need it so badly. Small BizCast drops every other Monday. Follow us on our socials for business tidbits and special offers. Thank you again to our sponsor, Mercury Document Imaging. We couldn't do this without you. And of course, thanks to my producer and my son, Charlie Volk of Mr. Thrive Media. Couldn't do without him either. Thank you very much for listening. Hot dog. It's a wonderful life.